So it's not a Father's Day sermon, but it is a First Samuel uh, chapter 20 sermon. Let's open up in prayer that God might work through his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we, we are so grateful that you have uh, blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. What joy it is to be in covenant union with you through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on our behalf. We thank you that you have not only secured our salvation for those who have come to faith in you, but you continue to make yourself known to us through your word. And we pray that you might speak to us through your word this morning, that we might learn something more about who you are, who we are, how we respond, what you have blessed us with, but also too of how we find uh, comfort and help in our times of need. Um, so work in us and change us uh, to be um, your children who humbly and obediently serve you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Oops. Now, COVID's had its fair share of interruptions. Now, I reckon I've done pretty good in terms of it not really impacting my life a great deal, other than the fact that we were going to go on a holiday to New Zealand, which is now a holiday to North Queensland. But I think probably one of the hardest ones is when it's been limited numbers for special occasions, and particularly weddings and funerals. One of those two is a lot easier to postpone than the other. Now, I've been in the fortunate fortunate position that I actually haven't had any weddings that were scheduled during this time, I don't have, have any on the, on the run at the moment. Although I did do premarital counselling last year for a couple who had a wedding plan set for April, which was then got delayed to another date, and hopefully, God willing, they will be having their wedding in three Fridays' time. And one of the key events on that day is not the ring, it's not how pretty the dress is, it's not the way the, the guy looks when he first sees his bride, but it is in the vows as they express their covenant promises to one another. And they are promises that they make of how they're going to relate with one another in advance, not knowing what their future will hold. And you see the, the full breadth of the possibilities spelt out in your traditional sort of vows, like, for better or for worse, richer or poorer or sickness and in health. Now, sadly, what we know is that for the majority of marriages that break up, it's probably something that fits within those realms of because it, oh, it got worse. Or there was issues with money or health. We live in an era where loyalty is almost considered an optional or something that you think is a great value and you commit to until it becomes inconvenient. But when we're talking about the idea of biblical covenants, we're not talking about a casual sort of promise of this is what I think now but it's subject to change if, if I don't like it. Biblical covenants were binding. People would happily give up their own life rather than break the promises that they had made. Back in chapter 18, Jonathan made a covenant before God with David. 
not knowing what the future of their relationship would hold, how things would pan out. But what we do see over the passing of time and also into the chapters beyond what we're looking at this morning is that Jonathan's promises and covenant with David would require him to be faithful to David even to the point where it means that he's not loyal even to his own family, especially his father Saul. Now Saul, on the other hand, is someone who does treat these sort of promises as casual and things to be laid aside when they become inconvenient. Saul was fearful of David. He could see that David had the Lord's presence with him. He tried to kill him twice by throwing a spear at him. He'd set their army onto David on a couple of occasions, hoping the Philistines would take him out. But in chapter 19, verse 6, Saul swears an oath by the name of the Lord God of Israel, saying he would never kill David. But Saul is a man who is driven by a pursuit that is incredibly selfish. Living for his own power, his own authority, his own kingdom, his own glory, his own name, not the name, glory or the kingdom of God. So in his pursuit of his own selfish advancement, he very happily, we see, turns away from that commitment that he'd previously made before the Lord. So as we think in terms of covenant this morning through this chapter, we're looking at a covenant which is challenged in verses 1 to 11, a plan in verses 12 to 29, and covenant faithfulness expressed in verses 30 to 42. So firstly, covenant challenged. When you think about the times you make significant promises, the time when they suffer the most challenge or you're most thinking about what to do with them is when being faithful to those promises is hard. It may be inconvenient or it actually may even make your life even harder than it was beforehand. Now for Jonathan, who is Saul's son, Saul wanted David, the one whom Jonathan had entered into covenant with, his dad wanted this David dead, wanted him wiped out. Now firstly, in some of the previous attempts of David's life, Saul's daughter Michal, which he had given as a wife to David, had helped David escape the plans of Saul in chapter 19, verses 11 to 17. Then Saul thinks, well, we're going to make sure we get the job done and he starts to send out messengers to get David to have him killed. Yet the Lord intervenes every time. These messengers who go with a bad motive, the Lord somehow works in them and these messengers start to prophesy. Even Saul who's like, I've had enough, you're going to do a job properly, you do it yourself. Even Saul goes along and he too ends up prophesying and prophesying naked. A trend which I'm glad never got picked up in in modern church movements. David is the Lord's anointed. None of the plans of man have prospered to take his life. Sure, there was a time when Saul loved David. He took great pride in him, wanted him in his proximity, gave him a great role in the kingdom. 
But now he is deeply opposed to David. And I think David's a little bit perplexed. Like, I've been, he loved me, he's gave me these extra roles. And now he wants me dead. What have I done wrong? Saul hasn't expressed any displeasure with me, but his actions are like, what have I done? And so Saul questions Jonathan, Saul's son, thinking we're good friends. Surely he would confide in Jonathan if there's something he had an issue with David. So he asks Jonathan, what is it that I've done that your father wants to kill me? Now, if David's a little bit confused, I think Jonathan's a bit confused too. He's like, that. nah, you, you must be tripping. There's no way. Like, if my dad had plans like that, he, would, he tells me everything. You're, you're off your rocker, David. But even though Jonathan might not be convinced, David expresses it again in more firm terms. I say, on your life, I say, in the name of the Lord God, any day I'm never any more than a step from death. Surely Jonathan's got to start taking notice when you start to invoke you know, a promise in, in light of Jonathan's own life and bringing the Lord God's name into it. Now we don't know if he was actually convinced at that point that Saul actually did desire to kill David. The impression that we'll see later in the chapter would suggest that Jonathan maybe still wasn't convinced. However, he was committed to his faithful promises to David and says, whatever you say, I will do it. And as it turns out, there's a situation coming up where those promises are going to be put to the test. We're coming up to a time when it's a a new moon festival, which at the beginning of each month, they would have this feast and there would be sacrifices. It's described in Numbers chapter 10, verse 10, that the very purpose of this festival was to proclaim the Lord is God. Which is interesting that Saul is the one who is calling this feast, yet who has demonstrated and lived in such a way where he doesn't like the idea that the Lord is God, that he is the Almighty, he is the one with all authority. But he upholds the ritual. And even though David's been on the run for a little while, David is still Saul's servant. David is responsible to his service of Saul and he knows that he will be expected to be there. Now in the last couple of chapters, we've seen that Saul has been obsessed with David. He's been jealous of David. He's wanted to see David wiped out. There's no way that Saul's not going to notice if David doesn't turn up for the feast. David knows what Saul's like. He's already said, I'm one step from death at any point in time. I can't go. But he's going to notice that I'm not there. That's that old ethical dilemma. Do I go to work and die or do I not go to work and live? Hopefully that's not an ethical dilemma that we face. So David starts to think through the options and the possible scenarios. And even though we're not going to talk about the issue of telling the truth here because it, yeah, it's a questionable part of this chapter. It says, how about if he notices that I'm not there, say that I've gone back to Bethlehem to a family to have a sacrifice and see how he, how he goes down with that, see how he responds. 
If Saul's not phased by David not being there, then all's good, let me know. We'll, we'll keep going back to normal. But I like the way that David thinks, maybe there is something that I've done wrong. I've suffered a bit of injustice at, at Saul's hands, but if I've done wrong by the king, David acknowledges, I should be faithful to the king. I should honour him as my king. And he says to John, if it turns out that I actually have sinned against the king... I deserve to die. In fact, you kill me yourself if that is found to be true. Don't waste the king's time. That's pretty serious loyalty, isn't it? Even though I've been mistreated, if I've sinned against the king, let me die. I deserve to. But the dilemma he faces is, how will I know if Saul is angry that I'm not there? I mean... If Saul's happy that I'm not there, then Jonathan's easy able to go tell David. But what if he's angry and he, and he cuts loose on Jonathan and Jonathan is killed? How am, I, how am I going to find out? At which point they think, this sounds like a conversation to take somewhere else. Maybe not so much a palatial conversation. And so they step outside and start to speak of their plan. Jonathan expresses his commitment even calling the Lord as witness, saying, if Saul's okay, what, with you not being there, why wouldn't I let you know? But if Saul is upset that I am not there, that you're not there, then may the Lord do to me what he would do to you if I were not to communicate and tell you what that is. Like Jonathan concedes the, re- the reality that his loyalty to David could result in his own death. Saying in verses 14 and 15, If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of your enemies of David from the face of the earth. Like David, Jonathan proclaims, calling on the Lord's name, there's coming a day I know when, when the Lord will cut off all of the enemies of David. Now, I don't know if Jonathan's aware that the number one enemy of David at the moment is his father. And he goes a step further in strengthening the covenant, not just with David, but with all of his household. So how's it going to play out? There's no doubt Saul's going to notice that David's not there. He's he's obsessed with David. He's going to to look to see where he's there. David, who's been out hiding in the field, which something he's probably quite skilled at, being a shepherd. It's something he's done on a regular basis. The plan is, come the third day, we're going to send you a coded message. Now Saul knows the close relationship between Jonathan and David. So if Saul was angry that David wasn't there, he's going to keep an eye on Jonathan to see if that'll lead him back to David. So you can't just go up to him and whisper in his ear. The plan was... Out in the field where David is hiding, I'll go out there with a young boy, I'll shoot an arrow, and if I say that the arrow's beside you, then, you know, everything's good, you can come on back. But if I say, isn't the arrow beyond you, then you know that Saul intends to do you harm and God is sending you away. So the plan's in place. Comes to the new moon feast. David's out in the field. Does Saul notice? 
that David's not there at the table like he should be? Yeah, he notices, but he's, he's, he's actually quite nice and presumes, well, David just must be unclean. Like Leviticus chapter 7, verses 9 to 11 says that if you are unclean and you, and you partake in the sacrifice, then you are cut off from the people. So he's like, yeah, that's probably what's happened. But tomorrow he'll be considered clean and then he'll be able to join us again. So he, he just kind of wrote it off the first day. But the second day is still missing. There's no reason why he should continue to be unclean again a second day. And so he turns his attention to Jonathan, who's a close friend of David's. Why is, why is the son of Jesse not here? Like, you can't even call him David. It's kind of like, the, that son of Jesse, why is he not here? Jonathan answers the question, as previously planned with David, but he even steps it up a notch. Not only does he say he's gone back to Bethlehem to have a sacrifice and a feast with his family, it says, and his brother commanded him to do so. Now, I don't think anyone's surprised that Saul's angry. He's an angry kind of guy. But he's angry towards Jonathan. Saul's the kind of person who expects loyalty from absolutely everybody, but especially his own flesh and blood. Yet Jonathan displays his covenantal faithfulness to David, not to Saul. Saul's anger is not because David didn't ask Saul. If it was a real situation, which we don't think it is, David would have had to ask Jonathan because Saul was still in Ramah. But for parents who are the kind of parents who might have read through the passage throughout the week with the kids and might have been surprised by the harshness of Saul's response. Particularly if you've been reading on from some of the paraphrased versions that even worded even harsher than what we have here. But it highlights the extent of Saul's anger when he says to Jonathan, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? That's a pretty scathing insult. It's not an insult specifically aimed at Jonathan's mother, but it's to Jonathan. You have brought shame and disgrace upon our whole family by choosing to be loyal to this David over your own family. We know that Saul's a bit paranoid. We know he's obsessed with power and keeping his kingdom up and running, even though he's been told a number of times, your kingdom's been taken from you, from your family, and it's been given to a neighbour who is better than you. But when you're so obsessed and you've got your mind set on something, your thinking's not always that clear. And we see that in Saul's response. For he says, For as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. There's two glaring problems with that statement. Like he's saying, Jonathan, if David's still alive, you're never going to have your kingdom. Saul's already been told that his family would never have the kingdom again. Then he says, send for David because he shall surely die. Says Saul, who in chapter 19, verse 6, says, As surely as the Lord lives, I will never kill David. Making an oath 
before the Lord to say that he wouldn't do it. Now, Jonathan takes him to task, and rightly so. What's he done? Tell me what he's done wrong. The law says, you shall not shed the blood of an innocent man. For Jonathan, it's not just because he's got a close friendship with David. It's not just because he's made covenant with David. It's an issue of justice. You do not shed the blood of an innocent person. So here they are at this gathering whose intention was to proclaim the Lord is God. And he's the one who says, you shall not shed innocent blood. And Saul just cast that aside. Sometimes people are so set on an outcome, they don't care what the Lord has said. We've probably all been in a situation either on the providing advice or receiving advice where someone has shared the word of the Lord with you or you've shared the Lord with someone else and they are so set on a particular course, even though they know what the word of the God says about it, they're like, nah. And so Saul goes back to his old tricks, pulls out his spear and throws it, this time, at his own son, Jonathan. I thought Saul was concerned about Jonathan not being able to have his kingdom. Little hint, if you kill him, it's a bit, bit difficult. It doesn't go too well together. Now Jonathan is grieved by the, for David and also the way he's been disgraced by his father, both in the piffing a spear at him and the way he's spoken to him. Hurt by his own father, do you think he regretted his covenant with David? I didn't know it was going to come to this. Certainly no sign of it. Instead, the next day, he goes out to the field exactly according to plan, goes out with a young boy, and I think he's probably even been intentional in bringing a young boy with him because they don't kind of question of why are we doing this or why, why are you telling me the arrow's gone beyond me when I'm standing next to it? So Jonathan goes out with the boy, they fire the arrow, and when the boy goes to collect, he came to the place where the arrow was that Jonathan had shot, and Jonathan called to the boy and says, Is not the arrow beyond you? So the boy's where it is. But the code word was, for if it's not safe need to go, is, Is the arrow beyond you? And without a question from the boys, Okay, off he goes. So he's communicated to David who's hiding behind the rocks that it's not safe. God is sending you away. But he also gives additional instructions for the boy and by implication communicating to David of hurry, be quick, do not stay. And after handing over his weapons to the boy to take back into town, Jonathan goes around to where David is and they're reunited um, once again. And as they reunited, Jonathan says to David, go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord shall be between me and you, between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. What a friendship. What loyalty. Who would think you could say, go in peace? And particularly those who have read ahead to future chapters, there's not much peace for quite some time. Saul is quite persistent in his pursuit of David. But every single attempt so far from Saul against David has come to nothing. Even when it seemed like so clear-cut, 
He could call the whole army in to do it if he wanted to. But it would be so easy to say, oh, what a great story about friendship and good mates and loyalty. But it's so much more than that. A better covenant. If you're talking in terms of human terms, David should be dead. Saul has the authority to command anything to take place. He's had ample opportunity to have David killed. But every single time that Saul has sought his death and continues to in the chapters to come, every time his plans have been thwarted. Sometimes we've seen it, say for example in the case where the messengers and Saul end up prophesying, God himself has intervened in such a way to protect his anointed. So during this time while Saul is celebrating something saying the Lord is God, he's seeing that play out in reality. He's realising that Saul isn't the ultimate authority. Saul isn't Lord. Saul isn't God. The Lord is God. Even the most well thought out plans and strategies of Saul to take away the life of the Lord's anointed could not come to pass. And it's one of many ways in which this David points us to the coming and greater son of David, Jesus Christ. When you read through the Gospels, how many times do we see the religious leaders seek to put Jesus to death? And there was one time when they were all surrounded around him, you think, this is guaranteed. And it just says, and Jesus moved away from them. Somehow God protected his anointed. And we see Jesus say time and time again, my hour hasn't come. Many of the plans of man, but if it's not God's timing and God's way, it cannot and does not take place. But this chapter is not just a reminder that there's a God who's in control of all things. It's not even just a reminder that there's a God who protects his people. Throughout this chapter, their theme of covenant is wound and woven throughout all of it, particularly between Jonathan and David, which takes us back to chapter 18, where it began by saying, and immediately after David's finished speaking with Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to David. It didn't say that Jonathan knit his soul to David. But it was knit by a third party. God knit the soul of Jonathan to David. God brought them together in this covenant relationship. And by the outworking of this covenant, Jonathan remained loyal to David, to his promises to him. Even when that meant forsaking his own loyalty to his own family, to his father, who is also the king. Remember what Jesus had to say, the, the greater son of David, Luke chapter 14, verse 26? It says, if anyone would come and follow after me, if anyone would come into covenant with me, he must be far more loyal to me, even at the expense of his own family, should it come to that. And if not, he cannot be my disciple. What we're about to share in a moment around the Lord's table is a visual picture of what Jesus has done to, for God to make a covenant with his people. It symbolises the covenant made by Jesus by which he saves, by which he protects, by which he secures us in, in covenant with him. 
knowing he was going to die on a cross the very next day, as he's sharing that meal, he took some of the bread, he broke and said, this is my body given for you. He knew that when he died on that cross, his body was, was being given up for the benefit of others. Because he was bearing their punishment, and that would be to their blessing, that the, the guilt of all of their sin would be taken away, and that the righteousness of Christ would be given to them. Then he also took from the fruit of the vine and said, This is the new covenant in my blood. A new covenant. The covenants were ratified by blood once and for all, not needing to be repeated. Sins washed away, all sins and unrighteousness cleansed. And it's a covenant that can't be broken. This is a covenant that God has made. He does not go back on his word. Who doesn't break his covenant? Or as the author of Hebrews says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So in a moment we are going to gather around the Lord's table and share in communion. We remember those things that Jesus has done on our behalf to bring us into a covenant relationship with him.